you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today's conversation may seem like it's guided a little bit more toward moms, in particular moms of child-rearing age, but I think this is a conversation that affects all of us of every background at any age. Here we go. Even though pregnancy and infant loss are common, society often shrouds them in secrecy and sometimes even shame, starving our grieving moms and their partners of much-needed support. Women may leave the hospital feeling like strangers in their own bodies, facing postpartum life without a baby in their arms. And like many faced with grief, the well-intentioned but hurtful comments from loved ones actually may work to make them feel even lonelier than ever. Today, we're going to be joined by Rachel Lewis. She's the friend bereaved moms never hoped that they might need, but she's a friend for them. Gleaning from her five losses, five losses, Rachel founded the online community Brave Mamas to share the practical tips on coping that she wished she had learned as she was going through those losses. With transparency and with compassion, this conversation celebrates life's profound blessings, and there are many, and unexpected struggles, and there are some of those as well, and the goodness that comes through healing. My friends, if you or someone you love is experiencing or has experienced the loss of a child in pregnancy, this conversation today is for you. I'm going to encourage you to open wide your mind and your heart. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Get ready to take some notes as I bring on my friend, and I promise you she's going to be yours. Her name is Rachel Lewis. Rachel, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this opportunity to chat today. Well, this is not our first chat. We must be honest with our listeners. This is our <laughs> second occurrence. I have the honor of interviewing you right now, but you also had an opportunity of hearing me a couple of years ago. Tell our listeners where, uh, where we may have met each other. Yes. Yeah, so I was at a Arbonne conference. I was one of, do you know how many people were in the audience? Was it like, <laughs> like 16,000 or something? What was it? I think in that little room, there were like 19 in that room. And then there was overflow of three or 4,000 more. So it was an awesome, awesome crowd. It's so funny because thinking back on it, I'm like, I was just this one little person, you know, that you didn't know I was there. And but I was inspired by your story and your grit and your determination and your story stuck with me. And I got your book and I read your book and I connected with you because of course you were going through or had gone through and continued to go through a very different experience than I was going through at the time, but that was in the middle of my losses. Mm. And that was in the middle of my, like trying to figure out what does this look like to live um, with an unexpected life? Uh, so I resonated with you. And so when I heard from you all, I was like, yes, I know who you are. <laughs> yes. I want to talk to you. After reading the book and being moved deeply by it, I think uh, our listeners are going to love knowing who you are. So when you have an opportunity of bumping into somebody at a grocery store and they say, Rachel Lewis, hmm, it sounds familiar, but I can't, I don't know if I got, met you through Arbonne or what, but when you introduce yourself to others, how do you introduce yourself today? Oh, goodness. 
well, I think my motherhood is a big part of my identity um, at this point in my life. So I often acknowledge that I'm a mother in three ways, that I am a biological mother, I am a adoptive mother, and I am a foster mother. Uh, still have our license, don't, but don't currently have a foster child in our home. But I have experienced parenting um, and mothering in those ways. And I guess I should add, I'm a bereaved mother as well, because um, as we'll share, I've had five pregnancy losses. Um, and I've also uh, reunified a foster son twice. Um, wow. So there is a component, I guess, of, of that that's a little bit complicated. But I think I identify primarily as a mother. And then also right now being an author is uh, very important to me as well. We're going to talk about those losses and those blessings and the work you're doing and the words that you've written and the impact that you're having. I, I want to go back in time a little bit, even before you and I met in 2017 at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, you and your uh, <laughs> 22,000 friends. Talk about growing up. Where'd you grow up and what were some of the big influences for you growing up? Oh, goodness. So I was a military child. At the time, I didn't like having to move around. But what that did for me was it gave me permission or maybe it just like forced me into the uncomfortable where I had to learn like, well, if I'm going to have friends, hmm. I have to reach out. I have to connect. I have to take initiative. Growing up in the military was a big influence. Every couple of years, everything was changing and I, and I had to figure out who I was in each new circumstance, right? Because every time you move, you have this opportunity of like presenting yourself. And then there's that question, okay, who am I? You know, what do I, who do I want to be? And um, how do I want to change? So I don't think as a kid, I was thinking through it quite like that, you know, but, but looking back on it as an adult now, I can see that each time I moved, I, I had that opportunity and I was changing and growing. So that was a that was a big influence. My family was a big influence. Um, I have two loving parents, two sisters and a brother, and we are a very tight knit family. That has been a very big source of uh, comfort and security in my life. And I think that was really helpful too, since I was moving around so much to have that to come back to. And then my faith in spiritual journey and uh, the church was also a really big, big influence. So you, you have your faith and you have your siblings and you have your parents and you're moving every couple of years. As you move from one community to another, would you be who you were in the previous community and the next one? Or were you trying to become who they needed you to be? Oh, that's a good question. I think the hardest move where I really faced that the most was when I moved from Cheyenne, Wyoming at 15 um, where everything was really low key to moving to the South in Georgia. And I remember having to shop for Sunday outfits because I didn't have fancy enough clothing to wear. And the first time I went to a event, it was like an orientation at school. There were all these girls and they were wearing skirts and they were wearing high heels and, you know, they had their nails professionally done and their hair dyed. And I, you know, like, like Midwestern, like <laughs> girl who grew up with people having cowboy hats and um, wearing, I wore surf shirts with jeans all the time. Uh, it was like, I don't know where I fit with this. I don't know where I belong. So that was probably the biggest culture Change, shock right? for me. And that happened right when uh, I, I was going into high school. So transitioning from junior high to high school. And I, I kind of joked that everybody had already figured out their click in utero. Like they were best <laughs> friends <laughs> from the moment they were conceived because it was so hard to find where I belonged and to find my niche. So that, so that was the hardest. And I think that that probably was the time that I I tried to fit in the most because I needed that belonging because what belonging is, you know, a core need of ours. So at that time I needed it. And so I definitely feel like I was changing and trying to, trying to fit in and trying to find myself in the midst of that. So you're going through this period of change. What, what were you imagining that you would do later on in life? So as you imagine graduating high school, then what? Mm. Well, I'd always wanted to be a mother. So that was like a dream of mine that I had pictured since I was little. I, I had it very clearly. I was going to have four kids. I was going to have a white house, like a big, you know, two-story white house with a 
white picket fence and a dog who never barked. Like that, that was my vision. <laughs> but I also envisioned being a speaker, which is really interesting because I don't think that's probably a lot of kids' dreams. A lot of people fear public speaking. And so, and, and honestly, I was a shy kid. So that kind of didn't really seem to fit, but, but yeah, that, that's kind of what I envisioned was, was being a speaker and then, and then being a mom. And I do have a two-story white house and a dog who rarely barks. <laughs> That's pretty strong. Like two out of three ain't bad. Picket fences next. Right. <laughs> you go off to school to not only become a mom, but eventually to figure out what to speak about, to figure mm-hmm. out what, what the topic ultimately might be. What did you do professionally as a young person? Uh, once I graduated college, I went straight into a uh, advertising agency that did fundraising for nonprofit organizations. So I started as a proofreader. Um, to be honest, I didn't apply for proofreader. I applied for like a project manager, but they actually told me I was the worst person at Excel that they had ever interviewed. <laughs> I was like, oh, thanks for telling me that, I guess. Um, but they're like, but here's a proofreading try. Like just, we need a proofreader to see if you can do, do this test. And so I did, and I got in, um, and then I moved to writing because I've always loved writing. And so I moved my way up to copywriter and I was able to interview other people who had really hard stories and, uh, take their words and condense their story into something that would help prompt someone to give to worthy organizations. I also developed the ability to write in other people's voices. From there, uh, as I was building my family, that's when I started Arbonne and I was in Arbonne for many years um, until I transitioned to author. Talk about love. Before we have a baby, you're first going to find a husband. So talk (laughs) talk about where you found him. Okay. So the really funny thing is my husband doesn't remember our first date. (laughs) now that is not in the book so uh, that should probably be in your next book because that's pretty uh, ironic (laughs) what do you remember about the first date well okay so the first time I I saw him very first time my first thought was I will never date you you know, I just gone through a breakup and I was really negative about, about boys. And I could just see my, he was friends with my sister. Um, Ryan is my husband. He was friends with my sister. I like, I just could see this was going to happen. She's going to try to set us up. And so my sister, however, is really kind of sly. So the way that she did this is that she would always speak about Ryan to me, but only say the positives and never the negatives. And then she would talk to Ryan about me and she would only say the positives and never the negatives. So we had this really skewed version of right. who the other person was. <laughs> Luckily, and, Mary, uh, you figure out both sides of the coin and then you figure out how to redeem the, yes. the challenging aspects of one another <laughs> and the two become even better together. But yes. You eventually see this friend of your sister's as a potential, at least first date. Why? Yes. What was it about Ryan that you said, you know what, I'll at least go on a date with a guy. Okay. This is a funny story. I decided to go on a hiking trip with my sister and her friends. So it was, so it was Ryan who is a mountain, like he's a mountain guy. All of his friends are mountain guys. They climb mountains. As I explained earlier to you, I am mm, frail, maybe. (laughs) is a good word. I don't have a lot of strength and, and perseverance physically. And so what ended up happening is we drove up this mountain and it was, it was kind of a uh, curvy. And so I think I was starting to feel sick. We couldn't make it all the way to the top. So we were going to have to hike our way up to the place we were going to snowshoe. Um, this is already not turning out great for me. We pack our snowshoes onto our backpacks and we start hiking up the trail and five minutes in, I feel like I need to throw up. Not good. So eventually the feeling passes and we go another five minutes. So this is that we were literally stopping about every five minutes for me. I was mortified because I'm with all these people I don't know. And we were a good way up the trip. We'd already been hiking for a, a long time. And my sister looks at my backpack and she goes, Rachel, you only have one snowshoe. Gosh. And I was like, oh no. I was like, I guess I'll go back and try to find it. And she's like, no, it's not you. Don't go. She's like, I'll go do it. Well, it turns out I had dropped my snowshoe in the parking lot. So she had to go all the way back and then come back while we all waited. 
And during that time, I was so embarrassed. So I just sat on a log far away from everybody else because I was just like, I was just so mortified. And, oh, and the other thing is I didn't have good winter gear because this was not my jam. So I was wearing my dad's down fleece pants with a white down parka that was too big. So I looked like the Michelin man. I mean, I was poofy everywhere and I had a great case of acne on my face. (laughs) I was all broken out and I was just like, this was not my best moment. So Ryan comes over and he starts talking to me and he's really casual and, and engaging and friendly and nice. And I was like, okay, who is this guy? I have already ruined his trip. I have, I I don't, I clearly don't look good. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my good moment. Um, I was like, he must be a really, really nice guy. And, and he is, yes, he is a really, really awesome, nice guy. And so, um, so that was kind of the start where I was like, yeah, I think, I think maybe I would be open to this. That's an amazing story. Maybe your sister, all the positive she heaped on him. Maybe she's right about Ryan. <laughs> so you end up not only going up to uh, the, the mountain and summiting this, both snowshoes eventually, but making it back down, eventually dating, eventually mm-hmm. marrying, and eventually mm-hmm. beginning life together. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to, you know, I hate to speed through some huge milestones in your life, but ultimately your life is about profound blessings and unexpected mm-hmm. struggles. Mm-hmm. Talk about one of the very first unexpected blessings that you received when you found out that you were expecting. So the really surprising part of this. So, so we found out we were pregnant 10 months into our marriage. We were financially not ready. just in all the ways we had too small of an apartment. Like it it was shocking. Uh, What was hard and and my, and my daughter knows this. So I, I feel like I can speak about it freely, but I wasn't ready to be pregnant. I had just got on my first work trip where I was able to go to a homeless shelter and interview um, a whole bunch of homeless people to share their stories. And I kind of finally felt like I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a career person. Like this is moving forward for me. And then, um, and then suddenly I got pregnant and I also got really, really uh, sick. So I had already used up all my sick time within like a week of finding out I was pregnant because I just was so ill. And I struggled with this huge change and huge commitment. And then I I sort of felt like my body was physically taken over by something that, that wasn't me. And, and, and I, I had a hard time with it. And at eight weeks, it's my birthday and it was father's day and I'd stepped out of the car and it was as if somebody had just thrown a glass of water at me. And I, I, I looked down and I was, um, I had hemorrhaged. We went to the ER and I realized uh, that, you know, we might miscarry. We were, we were given a 50, 50 chance of miscarrying. And at that time, everybody around me already sort of treated me as though I had miscarried. I was already hearing the platitudes of, well, this is, this is just um, God's way of dealing with babies who aren't healthy or nature's way of dealing with this. And it's okay. You can try again. You're young. I hadn't even miscarried yet. It turns out that that baby held on and then we, I had threatened premature, uh, labor at 28 weeks. So then I was on bed rest mostly from 28 weeks on. And at 36 weeks, I developed a complication called help syndrome, um, which is where my body basically was in a life-threatening situation due to the pregnancy and her heart rate dropped very severely. And so there was an emergency C-section and at the end of it, we were both alive, uh, which is beautiful and amazing. And I'm ever so grateful, but they definitely left me with some PTSD from that experience. And at the time I didn't know, I didn't know that I deserved support through that yeah. birth trauma. You know, I thought maybe that was going to be our hardest thing that we were going to walk through as a family building our family. Um, but it really was just the start. What a great segue. And you, you mentioned help syndrome. I had not heard of it. I, I'm from a large family and involved in the hospital systems and married with four children and everything mm-hmm. else. It's serious, serious for the baby, very serious for the, for the mother. And you're not the only one who uh, not only endured this thing painfully, but experienced PTSD after this thing. And you decided with your husband, Ryan, I don't know if we should go through this again. I, I don't know if we, we as a couple should even try to get pregnant. Talk mm-hmm. about that decision. Well, that was a hard decision. Adopting, the idea of adopting wasn't hard. Uh, when I was a kid, I was, I was in middle school, I think, and I read a book that 
my parents probably didn't even know I read, <laughs> but it was, it was kind of graphic, but it was from a kid's perspective that had been abused. And it was, it was almost memoir style of their abuse. And I remember thinking, I, I guess I didn't realize that not everybody has a safe home like I do. And that prompted in me, I was probably like 14 at the time. It was just sort of this knowing, like I'm going to adopt one day. Like that's part of my calling. That's, that's what I want to do. And so when my husband and I were dating, I said, by the way, I'm going to adopt someday. And he goes, okay. And so that was that. <laughs> it was us deciding that one day we would adopt. So that, that was done. Um, but I, I kind of expected that I would have more biological kids first. And so saying, okay, we're done. Oh, we are not trying anymore. That was, that was a sort of loss, especially because I wanted a redemptive pregnancy. Yeah. I wanted a pregnancy where I was excited. I wanted a pregnancy where I was celebrating and where hopefully I didn't almost die. <laughs> like, the bar was pretty low, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that news comes your way. And then it's not only something that you experience and share with Ryan, it's something you share with your sister. You wrote about it in the book. You, you, you reach out to her. She's in Walmart, I think, shopping, and she starts crying. What, what is it about learning that you're pregnant that creates so much emotion within both of you that, that you're weeping on the phone together while she's in aisle 14? We started the process to adopt. We got licensed for foster care. And a few weeks later, I found out I was unexpectedly pregnant again. And, and that was this redemptive pregnancy for me. I was like, I am going to just jump into this with both, both feet. It was a, just sort of this, I didn't, I didn't know that I, that I could have this. It was just this huge, huge blessing. And so I just wanted to celebrate from the very moment that I knew. And so I, I called my sister, as you said, and, and shared the news the day that I found out I was pregnant. I shared, I was not going to wait for anything. And yeah, they, excitement of that just made her start crying in <laughs> Walmart. I'm sure other people probably looked at her like, what is going on? But, um, but it was a joy that was shared. Like everybody, everybody shared the joy. So, so that was really lovely. So those of us who've been through this process, it's such a joyful one. It's, a, it's such beautiful anticipation the appointments, the, the parties, all the things that you're looking forward to doing with your partner, with your spouse, with your loved ones, and eventually with your baby that you will hold. You mentioned the phone call where you caused tears for your sister. I'd like you to share a phone call that you received from a nurse. So the phone call I received from a nurse was from a different pregnancy. However, there were some signs with, with, with this pregnancy that uh, things may not be going as I'd hoped. Um, I wasn't as sick as I was the first time, um, which to me, I just hoped meant that my body was doing better. Uh, I started cramping really, really badly. And and actually there was a point at which I had gone to, I was at work and I was cramping so badly. I, I went into the bathroom and I was, I was on the floor in the bathroom in tears. And I was there probably for about an hour and my coworkers recognized like something is not right. Um, you shouldn't be in this much pain. I was still deluding myself into thinking that, you know, it was fine. Everything was fine. And so we went to the, we went to the emergency room and, um, they couldn't find the baby. And so they, they said like, maybe, you know, follow up on Friday with your provider. Maybe, maybe your dates are just off. Um, and you're just earlier than you think you are. So I knew that I knew in my heart that wasn't true, but still it offered hope. So I clung to it. Mm. And, uh, on Friday we did get the nurse's call. Your HCG numbers have gone up, but they haven't quite doubled. So you should just be careful, stay close to a hospital. And the reason for that was because they were worried about an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. And that night I started the miscarriage process, um, or at least what I thought was a miscarriage process that was completely devastating. And at my, on my way to my follow-up appointment, um, my fallopian tube actually tore down the side and I started internally bleeding and I was home with my three-year-olds 
I'm kind of a stubborn person actually. So my, my family, um, offered, my mom offered to come give me a ride to the hospital. And I was like, no, I could barely walk, but I still got my three-year-old into the car, buckled her up, um, and drove myself while internally bleeding (laughs) to drop off my daughter. At which point, by the time I got there, I could no longer stand. And my dad had to carry me from my car, um, lay me in the back of his car and, and take me in. So, so there you go. That, that was sort of the dramatic, uh, ending, I guess, of that pregnancy. And the beginning of the next chapter of unexpecting, Mm -hmm. something that no one really preps you for. And there's no one path toward living through this time and this season, this grief Mm -hmm. individually and and as a couple, you, from what I understand, you're broken, rightly so. You're just broken. You had this dream and now this dream is no longer going to be part of your life and part of your future. And you go to a Barnes and Noble, whatever the bookstore was to, to get a coffee and to learn a little bit more about how do I grieve through this? And there's nothing there for you. Would Mm -hmm. would you share a little bit more about that? Like you said, after that huge before and after life, life just divided right there between, you know, before my loss. And then after my loss, um, I was dead. I was like, I'm going to get pregnant again. And we did fall pregnant. Um, nine months later, And then I got the nurse's call that said, your HCG has dropped. You're going to miscarry. And it was a very different experience than my first loss. I wasn't sure what to expect from my body. So my husband and I went to Barnes and Noble and I was looking for books and I saw two books. Um, One was titled, titled, I think like how not to miscarry or Mm. something like that, um, which I found very (laughs) offensive. And the other was taking charge of your fertility, which is actually an excellent book for for fertility. Um, if you're looking for any resources on infertility, it's an amazing book, but what was hard is that I had tried to take charge of my fertility and it didn't work. So I just, the whole book, the whole place, I couldn't find anything that spoke to miscarriage to tell me like, what can I expect from my body? How can I prepare? What, how can I prepare for a recurrent loss? What's this going to do to my heart and my family, my relationships? I just needed some guidance and I couldn't find it. Mm. And that made me feel even lonelier than before because it felt like what was only acceptable was a positive experience, right? Because you go, you go to Barnes and Noble and there's just books and books and books on pregnancy um, and child rearing, but like, where's the book that says loss happens and grief happens, and it's not always the ending that you expect. Mm. So I, I wrote down a lot while I was reading through your book, and and we are now past the point in our lives where we will probably be welcoming little ones into our life. Although Beth O'Leary, if you're listening, I'm up for it if you are. So uh, let, let me read you <laughs> from chapter one. When you lose a baby in pregnancy or shortly after birth, some people act as though you've lost the potential for a baby. You had a near miss, an almost kid, a chance to have a baby, but no more. But you know what you lost. You lost your daughter's first smile. The first time your son rolled over, the look on your sweet girl's face when when you soothed her tears, the way your son nestled at your breast, her first steps, and every step after of her running into your arms, your son burying his eager fist into a first birthday cake, then smearing chocolate frosting all over his cute little cheeks. The first day of preschool, and then the first day of kindergarten, first day of high school, first day of college. Every one of his t-ball games, her honor roll report card, his first coach, Her daddy-daughter danced the excitement on his face when his dad took him for the first drive, wedding dress shopping, watching your son become a dad, your first and second and last grandchild, all of them being born. That's what you lost. In other words, you lost all of these dreams you had, not only for this child, but for you. Mm-hmm. that's what you're grieving. You know, what to expect when you're expecting. That's a great book. Mm-hmm. That's not your life though right now. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where to turn. So where do you turn? 
And I'm asking, so when you had this loss and you're grieving and you don't know where to turn, what did you do? What did you start looking toward? Well, there are two places where I found belonging. The first was in other people's blogs. I mean, this was 10 years ago. So, so blogging was a big thing at that time. And this was kind of before social media was, was a big thing. So I just turned to other people's stories. And I remember, you know, a specific time where I felt so alone and I couldn't sleep because, you know, part of the PTSD, you know, there were nightmares. So even when I did sleep, I wasn't getting rest from my loss. It was just recurrent nightmares. And so my husband was next to me, but he was grieving differently than I was. So I didn't even feel connected to him. And I turned to my phone and I just read um, other people's stories that were going through loss. And I realized, okay, if I am walking through this, someone else is too. And I can't go back and, you know, our daughter that I named our daughter, Olivia, our topic baby, I can't change the fact that Olivia is not here, but what I could do is I could write my story and maybe somebody else who is sitting alone in bed, their husband next to them, but feeling miles apart, Mm -hmm. maybe that person will not feel so alone. And then the second thing I did is I went to a a group called MEND, Mommies Enduring Neonatal Death. And that was a support group that was held at the hospital where I had my loss. And I met some amazing women, women I'm still friends with today, who embraced me. There was this struggle that I had that maybe I didn't belong because my loss was so early. You know, I didn't have control over when I, I experienced my loss. All I knew was that I loved a baby. And like you said, I, you know, as I shared, I lost a lifetime with someone. I didn't just lose the weeks that I was pregnant. And so these women embraced me and they loved me and they accepted me and nobody compared losses. Nobody said, oh, but your loss was only, or, but I got to see my baby or I got to bury my, I had to bury my baby. Nobody said that. They just loved me and accepted me and, and, and my grief was welcome there. Mm. And uh, so that, that was a huge source of healing. So writing and researching through the blogs that you were checking out and then actually going to these groups where others could share their struggle and you could share yours and together you would, you would heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you and I met at a large conference and afterwards people come up and they say hello and then they share their story. Mm. And oftentimes it's around the loss of a child, uh, sometimes in utero, sometimes a miscarriage, sometimes stillborn, sometimes after the little one is born. And sometimes the person sharing that with me is a dad. Mm. And it, you know, it always, yeah, I mean, emotionally even talking about it because I think those are the guys so often that, that don't get the help they need because they're supposed to just kind of just pull their shoulders up and, and go to work the following day. It's not their loss. It's, it's their partners, their wives. It's not, it's, yeah. not their, it's not their loss. So for the men out there who are maybe grieving or maybe one day might, we got a lot, a lot of kids who listen to the podcast on the way to school with their family. They might experience a loss in their life as they progress into it. What, what encouragement might you have to our male listeners today? I would just validate it is your loss. This, this is still your child. And you are still their dad uh, and you can act like their dad um, of this precious baby. Unfortunately, our society disenfranchises your grief because they, they put pregnancy in this box, this category of women's issues. And so you might have people come up to you and completely ignore the fact that you are also grieving and instead go, so how is Mary? How is your wife? Tell me how Mary is, you know? So all of a sudden, not only are you grieving, but you're thrust into this role of caretaking for Mm -hmm. your wife. And also at the same time, having your loss completely invalidated. So And at the same time, losing a pregnancy kind of goes against everything like our Western culture considers masculine and grieving that loss. You know, we teach that men should have a stiff upper lip, that they should, um, you know, always provide for their families. They should protect their families. And so it's this, this, this onslaught almost to um, a male identity. Like if you have been taught, these are some 
priorities. This is, this is what you should do. This is who you should be. And then all of a sudden you're faced with a circumstance where you could not protect your family mm-hmm. from, from this loss and from this, this devastation that can be incredibly difficult. So a lot of times what does happen for men is they may put off their grief for a while so that they can take so that the wife can fall apart. And then once the wife is, or their partner is starting to kind of, I don't want to say heal, but maybe uh, operate a little bit better, uh, right. function a little bit better. It's almost like permission then for them, for the men to fall apart. Uh, so, so I would say that. And then also I, I share in my book, there's a story of a man who doesn't know how to put words to his grief. And so, um, he had just lost a stillborn daughter. And what he does is he just goes out to the garage and he just saws wood. Like he's not building anything. He, he doesn't have a plan, but somehow he turns his tears into sweat. So there's more than one way to grieve. It doesn't have to look like a pregnant, you know, a pregnancy loss support group. It could look like going hiking. It could look like building something. There's, there's lots of ways to process feelings and, and words. That's just one way. It's it's not the only way. Yeah. Thank you. So that, that's great advice for the, the, the men. And you, you also write a lot in there, not only about the men grieving differently than perhaps the mom, but how both might want to be aware of triggers triggers that will out of the blue create all kinds of emotions that they may not have been expecting and how we can be a little bit preemptive in those things. One that you mentioned that was really heartfelt and honest of you to share was the invitation that you received to join someone else at a shower. Mm-hmm. Is there anything better than joining, you know, ladies coming together and you know, the, there's the pink cake over here and oh, we're celebrating the coming birth. Yeah, it is awesome. And it's agonizing possibly for a mother who uh, is still mourning the loss of her child. Would you share that story with our listeners? It's hard to hold more than one feeling at a time. Uh, We have to do it, but, but it is hard. And so when I got this invitation, I really wrestled back and forth because I thought, I really want to support my friend. I really want to be there for her and her pregnancy and in her successful pregnancy, the way she was there for me and my losses. So at the end, I, I, you know, I, I accepted the invitation. It, it going into a baby shower, I felt like, I don't know, walking into the most vulnerable place ever where I was just on pins and needles. And there was this one part in which we had to write a blessing for the baby and for the mother. And then we had to read them out loud. <laughs> and um, I croaked my way through it. I mean, I, tears like pouring down my face. I could barely speak. Um, and then after that point, I just ran, literally ran to the bathroom, locked the door, and then like weeped for 30 minutes. <laughs> so- <laughs> This was maybe not my best grief moment. Um, and it, it turned out that, you know, that my friend was very concerned about me and she ended up coming and like comforting me. And then I had to call my husband and he had to like, come get me. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. So, so I was walking into just a lot of triggers. And at that time I did not have the tools that I needed to sort of manage, manage those. And so, yeah, so, so there's some, there's some really hard triggers that we expect, like knowing we're going into a place that's celebrating babies that is going to, can be very difficult. Um, but then there's also triggers that we don't expect at all. Like maybe you're in the middle of a work day doing something completely not related to pregnancy at all. And suddenly an email pops up in your inbox, like, Oh, so-and-so had their baby. Like we're going in for a gift together. Um, so that could be a trigger or even, you know, a smell that you relate to the hospital or you relate to your pregnancy. You're watching a show and a commercial comes on for diapers. I mean, there you're just, you're just like walking into a minefield of, of all these, all these like little emotional bombs that you never know when you're going to, when you're going to step on and when you're going to be like, you know, <laughs> feel like you're in full out war, <laughs> your body is all ready for it. Fight or flight. When you think about these triggers and preparing ourselves for them, one way that you wrote about helping through this is also to 
to create almost like a, a like a living legacy celebrating your child in a way that is meaningful for you, meaning different frequently than the way others might do it. But, but as you look at the children that you've lost, the children who you weren't able to meet this side of eternity, what have been some ways that you found either healthy and effective for you to celebrate their lives hmm. or ways that you have, because you have a long, a, a nice online community, maybe other ways that others have celebrated the lives of their children. What is really interesting, you know, is, is this concept of continuing bonds. It's a way of uh, grieving through staying bonded and connected and, and nurturing that connection to your child. This is a completely valid form of grief. It doesn't mean you have to let go and move on. Um, it means you, you can still parent. It just looks different. For me, parenting, you know, and, and, and leaving a legacy, that part of that was writing my book on expecting um, having reaching out to other moms through my brave mamas group, which you just mentioned my support group. That is in a way, the way that I contribute meaning to their lives. Their lives were already meaningful. Uh, all lives are meaningful, but that was my way of saying, like, I still want their presence to somehow be here on this earth and still be engaging with their memory, even though they're not here. So some of the moms in our group, they may like on their birthday, they may go to the bakery and purchase a cake for another child that day. It's just like pay for a cake. So it's like, if somebody has a birthday today, I'm going to pay for their cake or doing random acts of kindness, encouraging other people on an anniversary to do that. Um, some people do uh, go to memory walks. I just uh, just spoke at a memory walk a week and a half ago. And that was a beautiful, it was about, a, about 800 to 900 people, just a beautiful community of families coming together and speak, you know, speaking their names and, and saying their names and remembering together. So really this, this idea of continuing bonds can look, it can look a million different ways. And what's important, if anybody, you know, is, is, is wanting to do this is, to find something that feels meaningful to you. And it doesn't have to compare to anybody else's. There's no better or worse way to do this. It's just, how does this, how does this make me feel connected to my child? And, and is, this, is this a way that I want to nurture our bond? So we have, as you know, seven questions that tether all of our guests together. We call it the Live Inspired Seven. And so we are almost about to begin running the gauntlet together. Before I do the, we, we've been speaking a lot about this loss in the first person, my loss, your loss mm -hmm. as a couple. Mm -hmm. What about the loss of a friend? If I have a neighbor, I have a family member, I have a, an old college buddy who uh, we found out that they've experienced a loss. What are some things that we in this community can do for those who have experienced this as a family? Mm -hmm. That is such a good question. Thank you for asking that. Acknowledge and validate. I want to give you permission to know that you don't have to fix this. So sometimes when a loved one is going through something hard, our initial instinct is how can I help? And in, in the way of like, how can I make this better? How can I make this more? Okay. And the reality is all of our efforts to make something more. Okay. It invalidates the pain of the person going through it. And truly there just is no, there is nothing. So I want this to not sound, sound upsetting. I want it to feel like permission and this sort of exhale that you don't have to fix this. You can see them. You can recognize their loss. You can speak back to them, their loss. People all, every single person on this earth wants to be seen exactly as they are, where they are, how they are. So speak that, reflect that back to them. I see your pain. I might not understand it. I might not be feeling it, but I, I acknowledge that it is real and it is hard and then meet their physical needs. A person cannot heal. A person can't move through trauma if they are still in survival mode. And so look around and say, how can I serve this person? And I really strongly recommend if, if you are, you know, trying to meet someone's needs rather than go up to somebody and say, I, I'm really sorry. Let me know if there's something I can do. Um, I just, that person who is in survival mode is physiologically incapable of 
putting all the pieces together to figure out what they need and how to meet that need and who should meet the need. And then to communicate all of that, that's a lot of work to put on a grieving person. So one person should be sort of the care coordinator that is far enough outside the loss that they are not themselves completely like obliterated by it. They are still functioning and other people can come up to them and say, I care, how can I help? And that coordinator can then ensure that the needs, the needs of the bereaved are being met. So see them, hear them, love them, validate them, meet their physical needs. Mm. We're going to begin moving toward the finish line, which as we all know on this podcast is the starting line. I'm going to end with a quote from Lenore Skenazi, if I'm saying that right. All the worry in the world doesn't prevent death. Mm. It prevents life. Mm -hmm. And this book, although it does acknowledge so much sadness, so much loss, so much death, it's a book ultimately that celebrates the goodness, the blessings, the healing, and the life that is abundant and that is in front of all of us. And so I, I, I so enjoyed it. So enjoyed you sharing your heart and your story with us. And I appreciate the time today. So speaking of books, the first question from Live Inspired 7, my friend and fellow author, is what is the best book or the most influential book you've ever read? Not written. That would be unexpected. But what's the best book you've ever read? Oh, goodness. Um... I'm going to answer with two, probably the book that I mentioned earlier, I would have to say is the most influential because I, I literally live every single day, the effect of that book, um, because I am an adoptive mother and I am a foster parent. And so that probably has had one of the, the biggest, um, influences in my life. And then I also really, really value man's search for meeting, uh, meaning by Viktor Frankl, um, if you don't know his story, um, I'm sure you do, but, uh, for listeners, if they don't know, he was in a concentration camp and he lost his family and he, um, basically this is his internal, it's his struggle, but it's also his, his search, his search Liberate. for me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> determine how he wants to live his life going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he does, and he does, and he has, he, he finds a good life mm. and he, de- he makes a good life out of, out of ashes. And so that to me, I, that probably is one of, one of the best books I've read. Rachel, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl moving around a lot, but you possessed it as a little girl that you wish you would exhibit as beautifully today? I have never thought of that. I guess feeling fully myself without, half, without worrying about how that was being received. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I think most of us begin to ego up and mask up a little bit as we progress into life. Mm-hmm. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, mm-hmm. one possession that really matters to you, mm-hmm. what do you what do you grab and what do you run out with safely? I would probably say my computer because it's got all of my files backed up, um, <laughs> not files, but, uh, pictures of my family. Everything um, is on, on there, man. Email, so. <laughs> websites, you, you build life with the laptop. Yeah, I do. I do have it. We do have it on the cloud. So maybe, so maybe that's not fully fair, but probably that. What's the best advice you've ever received? I'm trying to think of who specifically, uh, shared, shared this with me or just this concept, but the gist of it is, no matter how many like losses you've had, um, those are just jumping off points. So it's just a, another way to launch into life. It's not, mm. it's not the end of life. It's just another starting point. What advice would you give yourself if you could go back in time and whisper a little wisdom at age 20? I would say that your life looks nothing like what you planned, but it is absolutely a life worth living. And there is so much joy, even mixed in with the pain and so much meaning and just keep going and keep persevering through all of the hard things. Rachel Lewis, you've indeed weathered many, many, many hard things and received many, many, many blessings but it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She loved with everything she had in her. 
Rachel Lewis loved with everything she had in her. She is also the author of the book, Unexpecting. It's a beautiful book. I encourage it for anyone who um, is enduring a loss or knows someone who might be. Rachel, I, I thank you for your time and your grief and your healing and your words and your wisdom. It's been an honor having you on our show. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. My friends, that is Rachel Lewis. My name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. What a gift today is. Live inspired. Well, acknowledge and validate. Acknowledge and validate. With all grief, and especially those faced with infant or pregnancy loss, Rachel Lewis reminds us that these two actions are vital in the healing process. Acknowledge. No, don't fix it. It's not going to work. Don't downplay it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Just acknowledge the pain that our loved ones are facing. That's a start. And then validate. That's a second play. The heavy and the often confusing emotions that they are experiencing right now. Acknowledge and validate. While visiting with Rachel, I was in awe of the love and the hope that she exudes. You could hear it in her voice, couldn't you? It reminded me of a conversation that I had a couple of years back with Amy Wolf. My longtime loyal listeners will remember that name, Amy Wolf. She's the mastermind behind a life-saving global movement of hope, of love, of encouragement. You see, Amy was overwhelmed by the staggering suicide rates in her small Oregon town. So she was determined to support those struggling by having simple phrases of supported and love printed on yard signs displayed throughout her community. Never anticipating it would ignite a powerful life-saving movement, these phrases are displayed on yard signs, wristbands, stickers, t-shirts, and cards across the United States and around the world. You are enough. Don't give up. You've seen these signs. I know you have. Well, the leader, the mastermind, the spirit behind them is Amy Wolf. And if you are facing uncertainty, struggle, or unrest, check out the conversation with Amy Wolf, Live Inspired, episode number 350. So track it down anywhere you pull down your podcast or just visit me online. I'm hanging out there right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our global movement of love and encouragement and hope. It's called Live Inspired. Thank you for being part of this movement. I want to remind you that the foundation here is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best remains in front of us. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day, friends. Choose to live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.